0: You're listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. So this morning we're going to turn our attention to Galatians chapter 2. I want us to uh, turn there together this morning. We're moving into the second chapter of Galatians this morning. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. And after a brief initial greeting, Paul launches into a passionate rebuke of the Galatian believers because they were influenced by a group of Judaizers. Alistair Begg refers to what was happening in Galatia Uh, uh, in his British accent. I love to hear Alistair Begg preach as gospel espionage. Um, These Judaizers were proclaiming a pseudo gospel uh, that was polluted by legalism. And so Paul uses... A strong language here in condemning the the teachers of this different gospel, even pronouncing their damnation. Uh, Last week in chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, Paul used his personal testimony to drive home his point that we cannot add anything to the grace of God without getting a polluted false gospel. And if anybody could add anything, it would be someone as religiously elite, as religiously decorated as the Apostle Paul. The main truth that uh, hopefully we've learned through Galatians 1 is this, God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for Him. God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for Him. And while we understand that truth on many levels to be very freeing, for some of us it may seem a bit frustrating. Because you may want to ask, you mean I can't do anything to please God? In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says his aim is to be pleasing to him, and he tells believers to have the same purpose in 1 Thessalonians 4. So which is it? There seems to be a tension here, as is the case many times uh, in Scripture. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Christy and I uh, are blessed with four wonderful children, uh, ranging in age from 31 down to 12, and um and uh, So I feel like we've been at this for a little while, and uh, we would both uh, say that there have been many, many times that we have been exceptionally pleased with our four children, uh, so proud. Uh, when we see them make wise choices and demonstrate godly character and uh, make tough decisions that exhibits Christ-likeness. it naturally pleases us in every way. But I can assure you, it does not determine how much we love them or if we love them. It's not as if we would say to our kids after they've done well, wow, now we, we, we're going to continue to love you for another week, okay? We're going to love you more than we did before. Or on the reverse side of that equation, if they fail or, or displease us, we're not going to say, well, we, we don't love you anymore. You're no longer our children. I think that's a little bit of what we're struggling with here as we look at Galatians, we're going to approach this second chapter of Galatians in a little different way than I might normally. Uh, we, we're going to look at the entire chapter today uh, because there are three different snapshots in the second chapter that help us answer the question, if God's pleasure in me is not determined by my performance for him, then how can I please him? And There are two episodes in Paul's life. Uh, in this second chapter, and there is also a foundational explanation. And so I hope that you'll follow along as I read uh, chapter 2 in its entirety. Uh, Let's look at it together, and you'll notice the language that Paul begins with. The word then there indicates that he is uh, continuing his chronological narration, so to speak, of the contact that he has had with the influential apostles since God revealed himself to him and called him to evangelize the Gentiles. So he says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be presented for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. That's Paul's way of saying, I'm not real impressed. (laughs) Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, or or to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, or to the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. To Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Then most of our Bibles tell us that in this next section Paul opposes Peter. But when Cephas, that's Peter, named uh, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Then he closes with these two verses that are probably most familiar to you in chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for his righteousness were through the law, and Christ died for no purpose. So throughout this part of his argument, he distances himself from any substantial involvement with the Jerusalem apostles. And following three years, if you remember back to chapter 1 there, uh, three years work in Arabia and Damascus, a brief visit with James and, and Peter in Jerusalem, and 14 years in Syria and Cilicia, Paul finally had a significant strategic meeting with James and Peter and John in Jerusalem. This was really like a networking meeting, you might say, to be sure that they understood each other and to strategize about the most effective ways to take the gospel to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And While Paul initiated this meeting because of divine revelation... The problem that really sparked things was the attempt of these false brothers, as he describes them, to impose the Jewish custom of male circumcision on the, 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 uh, on the Gentiles, a non-Jewish believer, such as Titus, who uh, was a Greek. So Paul saw this as an attempt to take away Christian freedom. Replace it with enslavement, which was a perversion of the truth of the gospel. He wanted to to be clear that there can be no compromise in this area. And So I want us to look at the three snapshots that we find here in chapter 2 this morning to to give us a better understanding of what Paul is saying and what we're to learn uh, through God's word today. These three snapshots. The first one is legalism. Legalism. We've talked about this Uh, In in our unpacking of chapter 1, we would describe this as right behavior, but with wrong belief. Right behavior with wrong belief. There was a discussion between Paul and... These false brothers over whether Titus, a Gentile believer, needed to be circumcised. And if Titus were uh, compelled to be circumcised, that would be a huge win for the Judaizers. And it would be a a, a blow to the gospel of grace because it would be adding human requirements as necessary for salvation. Now, remember that the introductory message in this series, uh, we defined legalism as working in our own power according to our own rules ultimately to earn God's favor, working in our own power according to our own rules, ultimately to earn God's favor, the Judaizers were advocating for what would be considered good things that were certainly important in Jewish life, in addition to a variety of other laws established for the people of Israel particularly. But laws become legalistic when they are joined to the belief that in doing them, one can earn favor with God. That's legalism. Again, you may be saying, Pastor, today, we are not dealing with this matter of circumcision and ceremonial law and all of these sorts of things. But I can assure you that there is a rather long list of things that we might do that fall into this category of right behavior with wrong belief. One of them is what we're doing this morning. Uh, you can mistakenly believe that by attending church and by attending church regularly, that you will, that you will find uh, some measure of favor with God that you wouldn't find otherwise. There are a, a whole list of good things that we can do, the reading of our Bible and, and praying and even witnessing to others and, and baptism and, and serving within the church in a variety of different ways, a number of different things that we can add. They're all good things all good things. But if you're doing them with the thought or the belief that you can somehow earn more of God's favor or love for you by doing those things, that really is a form of legalism. It's right behavior in and of itself, but with wrong belief. And that is what Paul is addressing here. All of us have this tendency in some way or another. By nature, some of us far more than others, but we tend to be self-sufficient. We think, yes, Jesus, but surely I've got to do something too, right? (laughs) David Platt says this, we are all recovering legalists. And I think there's some truth in that. And so legalism is the first snapshot that we see here. The next one is hypocrisy. That is right belief with wrong behavior. Right belief with wrong behavior. One of the most dramatic and tense scenes uh, in the entire New Testament is found right here. Paul was so confident in his apostolic authority and his understanding of the truth of the gospel that he was willing to take a stand against, against Peter in order to defend it. The fear and the hypocrisy in Peter and the others in this conflict demonstrate that they depended on human authority and sought to please men rather than God. And some of us can quickly identify with that tendency, because we too are people pleasers. And so what we tend to do then, even in modern day Christianity, is to wear a mask, to put on a facade. In fact, that's where the word hypocrisy comes from. It's from the word Hippocratas. It is a word that was borrowed from the theater. And if you've ever seen the, the universal symbol for drama or for theater, you have these two masks and the idea of the hypocrite, of the hypocrites, was someone who is two-faced or wearing two masks. That's where we get that terminology from. And so Paul is calling them out on this. He's saying it's so two-faced for you, Peter, as a Jew, to sit and eat with Gentiles, which would have been forbidden. But then when you see these, these other Jewish brothers coming from, from, from Jerusalem with James, you go, oh, man, I got Like they can't see me eating with you guys. And it's like, you see the hypocrisy in that? That's what what Paul is pointing out. What was the real problem here? I mean, Jews, often associated with Gentiles, especially in Antioch, Peter seems to have started to live like a Gentile, probably in the sense that he had stopped observing Jewish dietary restrictions, which would not only have included what he himself ate, but with whom he ate. Okay, And so uh, that's what seems to be happening here. In response to a heavenly vision that you might remember from Acts chapter 10, he had tossed out an important uh, Jewish identity marker. And so his withdrawal from a, a form of fellowship with the Gentiles that he had previously practiced seemed to communicate that these Gentile Christians had to become Jews in order to fully fellowship with Christian Jews, including the leadership of the Jerusalem church. This is a problem. And Paul's talk of hypocrisy assumes that all of them, even Barnabas, he says knew that it was wrong to buckle to that kind of pressure. And so whether the, the, the presenting symptom was pressuring Titus uh, to accept circumcision or pressuring Gentiles in Antioch to follow Jewish dietary laws, the disease was the same. The gospel is about a new creation in which the church dissolves former social boundaries. So the problem of Peter's withdrawal from the table fellowship with non-Jews was what it communicated about the nature of the gospel. It implied that in addition to what God accomplished for sinful humanity through the, the atoning death of Jesus Christ, people had to contribute something to their own redemption before reconciliation with God was complete and, with, and before fellowship with other fully justified Christians was possible. Now, again, we can read this and go, this so doesn't apply to us today. Like, I, you know, I don't think we're too worried about what we're eating generally <laughs> or with whom we're eating. Today we're not dealing with whether or not Jews and Gentiles should eat together and what kind of food they're eating. We got, but at the same time, we have plenty of inconsistencies because anytime we draw distinctions, much like what, what, what Peter and these others were doing here, we're guilty of the same thing. When we look down on a certain class of people, whether it's socioeconomic or we look across the aisle at a different political party and we, we create divisions and things, we were, why, why was Jesus most often criticized in his earthly ministry? A lot of times he was criticized because of who he ate with. The religious elites of the day were appalled that he would choose to eat with such people. And, if, and if, we're, if we're completely honest, we can tend to do the same thing. We can tend to look down on certain people who we perceive are not nearly as spiritual as we are, as, 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 as lower than us somehow. It's that whole thing of in the midst of, of legalism, again, you're doing good, you tend to be proud. When you're not doing so good, you tend to be fearful. And, and you're always comparing yourself with other people. You know, and so you can say things like, oh, I wouldn't be caught dead with him. Oh, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't go to dinner with her. I, I wouldn't associate with them. So Paul is addressing this in a straightforward way, this hypocrisy. And then I want you to notice the third snapshot, and that is a snapshot of Faith. That is right belief with right behavior. Right belief with right behavior. Paul summarizes the theological justification for his stand against Peter's conduct in Antioch and describes why the true gospel centered on Christ's crucifixion is at odds with the different gospel, the pseudo-gospel of the Galatian false teachers. And this last section of chapter 2 is really the logical center of the letter itself. And it provides kind of a transition from from really what is in many ways a discussion of Paul's apostolic authority to his sustained argument against this different gospel and for the purity of the true gospel. So we're left with this question, how do we bring together right behavior and right belief? How do we do this? That's the question. The key word in these verses is faith. Everything revolves around faith. Uh-huh. not not faith plus something else simply faith justification is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone remember our soul less series so what does it mean to be justified by faith? Let's give that some consideration today. Go back and to go back and live as if the law or anything else for that matter saves us after we've been saved through faith in Christ is in Paul's words to rebuild what I tore down. Remember Paul said, these things I count as dung. These things I count as rubbish. As rubbish. Uh, my, my self-righteousness, my religious resume, all of those things, I count all that as a loss for the excellency of knowing my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so along with faith, the other key word in these final verses is the word justified. Justified. The word appears four times in verses 16 and 17 alone. That tells us it's pretty important. And it comes from the same Greek word that is translated righteousness in verse 21. Many New Testament words that come from this same root justify justification just righteousness righteous justification is at the very heart of christianity itself and what paul seems to be doing over and over again in galatians is driving home the point that justification is indispensable in terms of how we think of the gospel and the christian life so what is justification i was taught at a fairly early age uh, a, a simple definition for justification. I was taught that justification means being made just as if I did never sinned. And, and that's theologically accurate. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to elevate uh, uh, our, our level of understanding today just a little bit. All right, and So let's use this definition. It is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's break that down. It is the gracious act of God. Justification. It is not you or me reaching a place of justification so that we can say, All right, I'm there. I found the finish line of justification. I've become good enough. I've cleaned up my act good enough. I've become righteous enough. No, it is an act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous. And justification is a declaration. It's a declaration. The word picture is that of a judge declaring his judgment. This is important and and, and shouldn't be confused with sanctification. Justification is an act, not a process. It's not a process whereby we can be more justified tomorrow than we are today. That would be sanctification, sanctification. It's a once for all declaration. It is guilty man standing before holy God and being declared righteous, not because of the guilty man's good behavior or the guilty man's innocence, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The holy judge of the universe takes a sinner who is in willful rebellion, deserving of a guilty verdict, and declares him not guilty. Pfft. What a picture. That's a great spot for an amen, y'all. I mean, that is, yeah, that, that is the gospel itself. That's Mike Lovely, a sinful human being standing before a holy God, guilty. Guilty as charged in every way. And yet, not because of my personal innocence, But because of the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, the eternal judge of the universe, looks at me and says, because you are clothed in my son's righteousness, you are not guilty. I want every one of you to leave here today knowing that. That's the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the last part of that definition says solely through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're on the track whereby you're trying to become good enough, you can't. That's an exercise in futility because even on your best day, you can't be good enough and neither can I. So God the judge takes the righteousness of Christ, his son, credits it to the sinner's account when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what we call the great exchange of the gospel. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ takes my guilt and gives me his righteousness. That's that's the gospel. And so again, God's pleasure in you is not and will not ever be based on your performance for him. God's pleasure in you is based solely on Christ's performance for you. What he accomplished for you. The gospel in four words is simply this. Christ in my place. Christ in my place. And Paul reminds us here in these final two verses that even after we have been accepted by God, declared righteous, justified, our good works, the evidence of our justification are still the result of Christ's work in us. We trust him daily to produce in us that which pleases him. And so in justification, it's not as if God sets into motion then our ability to please him in our own best efforts. No. Even as we strive to serve him and please him and serve him and and grow in grace, we do that through Christ living in us. That's why Paul said, it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is Galatians 2 in a nutshell. And it's the gospel that gives us hope. That's the victory that we have over sin and death because of what Jesus Christ has done. So I hope that you'll bow with me in prayer for just a moment this morning as we not only reflect upon what God's saying to us through his word, but as we respond. And I know I say this often, but everybody here this morning, You'll respond in some way to the message that you've just heard. You may choose to ignore it. My hope is that you will choose to receive it. That you will choose to live it. Be transformed by it. If you're here today and you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ... You're not certain about whether you have been justified. You're uncertain as to whether a gracious, loving, sovereign God has declared you as a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. I would love to meet with you. Any of our pastors, other leaders would love to meet with you. Open the Bible with you and show you how you can know that your sins are forgiven. That heaven will someday be your home, not because of anything you have done, or because of anything you could ever do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Maybe you're here today, and you'd say, "Pastor, I, I've committed my life to Christ. I do know that my sins are forgiven. I've been declared, been declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ." But If I'm completely honest, some of the things that I'm doing in my life right now either fall into the category of legalism or hypocrisy. But I'm not exhibiting the faith that I should in what Jesus Christ has done for me. So Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the clarity of the gospel And while we would say it's so difficult to completely understand in our humanness, I thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. That you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God, to bear our punishment, to take upon himself our sin, our guilt, pay the penalty and completely pay a debt that he didn't know to free us so that we can be declared righteous, justified before holy God. So Lord in these final few moments as we lift up our voices together we want to joyfully hopefully Proclaim, exclaim how great is our God. We love you. We thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.